A Thoughtful Faith Podcast is a production of Mormon Stories and the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to A Thoughtful Faith are tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at athoughtfulfaith.org. So at that point, um, the, with the inconsistency, I want to ask you, because um, there is quite a bit of inconsistency. I mean, we, we articulated a little bit about my experience here in Utah asking to go take my girls to a synagogue versus yours in New York City. Because it is a lay um, ministry, we are going to have incredible inconsistency. But with that, there is cultural overtones that I think we all experience. And how do I want to shift into the cooperative paradigm that you address in your paper, but it is very difficult for women to um, feel faithful and take a stand because there is some idea that submission is a part of faithful activity. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And so how do women who want to um, be faithful, but also feel conflicted, feel frustrated, um, and are experiencing maybe the negative side of those inconsistencies, how do we have a voice and how do we work with our men to make a change without being labeled as, you know, troublemakers? Or Can you speak about that? And you can put that within the context of the cooperative paradigm that you talk about. I can tell, I can tell you from, from my own experience and particularly my experience with my mom and, um, my parents' divorce that even the best of our male leaders fall into this trap that I've seen this in my own life. And even the best leaders, for some reason, when put over, um, an institutional body fall into traps of overreaching and overemphasizing these uh, biases against women. Um, and you know, I mean, with my mom, I remember very clearly another one of those really imp important moments. I remember very clearly um, she had been suffering, you know, uh, with my mom being, you know, the stalwart constantly active, incredibly faithful, um, woman versus my father who didn't really come and was definitely at more at fault. Um, it, I remember her being hurt and I remember her standing in our kitchen and just telling me, you know, the gospel is about the savior and it's about the witness of the Holy ghost. It's not about these men, men make mistakes. Um, and, and, and I would just remember her pleading with me, separate, separate them to find a way in your mind to separate them. And I was, you know, I was probably 14 or 15 at this time. And so that set me on this path of, of being able to, to always see the distinction. And, 
you know, I, I think one thing, one experience that I've had in working closely with the church, um, uh, you know, the, the organizational church in my job over the past couple of years is that I am constant, constantly confounded in my prejudices. So, you know, it's very easy to see a male leader or, um, a, you know, someone who has authority and just want to go up and like pin a little badge that says idiot on them, you know, <laughs> just be like, just, I'm just going to label you because you're an idiot. I don't like these decisions that you're making. I don't like the way you're treating me. Um, but what I found is that in being with, in meetings with, um, with various church employees and, you know, various people who I'm sure on the outside, others are labeling as idiots. It's so hard once you actually sit across the table from someone and talk with them and try to learn their motivations. It's so hard to actually condemn them. And so one thing that I've always tried to do, and I, I've done it more successfully in my city wards than I have here is to garner the trust of the leadership in the areas where I am asked to lead, whether that's in the primary and I'm just, you know, just with the children at some time, uh, whether that's as gospel doctrine teacher, whether that's as Relief Society president, garner the, the, the trust of the leaders that I'm working with in that sphere and understand them not to be idiots, but try, but understand them to be, um, kindly motivated men, you know, mo men that, that are, have best intentions. And, and what I find then is that if I work with them on that level, and if I garner, if I create a relationship with them on that level, and I just don't reach beyond that initially, then eventually the doors start opening where that trust is rewarded or that, um, that work in that smaller sphere is rewarded with influence in a larger sphere. And I think what happens a lot of times is that the moment we say something about, you know, I want to talk about women in the church, as you said, it, it's absolutely the impulsive reaction for many to just shut, shut down. And that's happened to me with this talk um, that I gave at fair is that the moment somebody says, and I've been told this of people who have shared it with their family, for instance, and they'll come back to me and they'll say, well, you know, my dad wouldn't even read it because he just saw that it was about women in the church. But what the talk did, I think, is it actually gave a whole new rhetoric for us to talk about for with, with which to talk about these issues that wasn't, you know, threateningly feminist and it wasn't just, you know, sit down and shut up. It was somewhere in between. It, it, it was, I'm not going to check my faith at the door, but we're going to look at this because it's a problem. And we have a solution and it's a doctrinal solution and it's a beautiful solution and it's embedded in our doctrine. So let's pull it out. You know, that's what I, that's what I tried to say rather than, you know, I'm calling on the brethren to make these changes and I'm, you know, I, rather than establishing any sort of threatening tone, I wanted to just work from the area in which I had been given influence. And hopefully by establishing trust in that small area, we can start now taking that rhetoric into a larger sphere and being trusted and creating a whole middle ground 
where there's a new conversation starting that's not either here or over there. It's it's somewhere where we start from a position of faith. We start from the assumption that it's, you know, equality is embedded in our doctrine, which I actually don't think a lot of people would disagree with. Um, I just think that they don't understand how the equality that's embedded in our doctrine can actually be represented. I want you to speak to that just a little bit more in depth. So articulate the equality in the doctrine in, in, in a few ways. We are the only major Western religion that acknowledges a female deity. I mean, that's, that's huge. That's huge. And, and I, and, 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 you know, there are, there is ample reason to be disappointed that that female deity isn't talked about more. There is, but you know, I mean, our opportunity to look at the glass half full is simply to say, wow, you know, we have a, we have a doctrine where not only is she present, but Eve is celebrated. I mean, that is so huge. And I, the, the, the magnitude of that was brought home to me when I was living in Boston and my neighbor across the hall from me was evangelical and was actually getting her master's degree at the Dallas Theological Seminary. And she invited me to be a part of a discussion group about women in the scriptures that um, had a curriculum that was written by the Dallas Theological Seminary. I was very envious of the curriculum. I wanted to go write one myself. But, um, um, but the first lesson was on Eve. And the whole lesson, there was that, there were, I was the only, she had other Mormon friends, um, there at, at, in our, in our, in our circle of friends there at the school, but I was the only Mormon present there that night. And so the conversation turned to, you know, how evil Eve was and how we're suffering because of her mistake and how if she had just hung on and if she'd just been more faithful, we wouldn't all be having to suffer through this. And, and, and I just, you know, raised my hand and sort of spouting this heretical doctrine. They all were looking at me thinking I'd gone crazy um, when I started talking about, you know, how it actually was a great choice, but it just, it really touched me how our whole world has been shaped by that idea of Eve being condemned. Right. And fallen. Fallen. And and yes, we believe we live in a fallen world, but we believe that it's, you know, part of this great plan and that and that um it, it was actually a, a blessing for each one of us. And so I just I I I love I love those um very that those very those elements that are built into our, our um restorative scripture. But also when we also built into our restorative scripture is this idea that men and women are were created in the image of gods that we were created equally and that we need each other in order to return and we can quibble about how we need each other whether we need to be sealed to each other you know and why men can be sealed to more than women i you know there there are problems with that but i think you know when i talk about the gospel being small i think i just keep going back to those foundational elements and I draw the line much closer in than I think other people do in terms of what I have to believe and what brings me joy. What I have to believe is that men and women need each other to return to live with Heavenly Father and that we have um, equal potential in our in our spiritual abilities, in our earthly abilities. Um, you know, and I... I and, you know, there, there have been a number... You know, you can go to someone like... Um, Valerie 
Hudson Castler has written Women in Eternity, Women in Zion. And it's a, it's a very forceful apologetic point of view on this. And she just, she, you know, that she spends, uh, Don Sorensen was the co-author of that book. And she spends, you know, just the entire book pulling out from scripture, these, this, the validation of this principle that men and women are created equally, but they need, and they, that they need each other in order to progress. Um, so in order to, um, continue on, I just want to make, I want to acknowledge the other side of that coin a little bit, because I know that there are women who are listening, who hear us talk about, um, having to, um, work within a patriarchal system and submit sometimes to, um, maybe priesthood holders or leaders that are not sensitive that, um, and having to earn their trust and that that language earn their trust is derogatory to many women that that feels, um, you know, it, it feels like we are a little bit less than to be put in that situation. Um, and so I just want to, um, kind of reinstate, restate back to you and see if this is how you would respond to that. But you're saying that, um, in order to make, or to, to have an impact in a positive way and to shape the church, we might have to go through some of those, those situations and bear that burden a little bit to be able to have a more positive influence. Absolutely. This is not going to happen overnight. I mean, someone asked me, um, you know, one of the suggestions that I made in the fair, well, in the fair talk, I end with a number of suggestions as to, to, to non-threatening handbook approved, um, ways that we can change our behavior, uh, so that we can extract more visibility out of our women in church governance. And one of those suggestions is, um, to have the young women involved in sacrament meetings somehow, whether it's handing out the programs or holding the doors open while the boys go out into the hall. Um, and, you know, someone said to me, that sounds so patronizing to have the girls holding the doors open for the boys while they're passing the sacrament. And I have, you know, and I understand, I understand where that point of view is coming from. I disagree, but part of the, dis- part of the reason I disagree and do not think it's patronizing is because I think, first of all, looking at, well, let me back up. So I don't think that's patronizing because I see that being replicated ward after ward after ward in every stake across the church, across generations. I'm, I, if one bishop decides to do it in one ward, I still think that's great. And it actually has happened. I've received lots of feedback over the past couple of weeks that, that these things are happening and that that thing in particular is happening. But, um, that's great, but it's not going to shift our cultural behavior church wide for maybe even a generation. And I think we are definitely in an era of transition between, um, our grandmothers who, when asked about Heavenly Mother, said, would say something like, ah, just relax, don't worry about it. The prophets have told us we don't need to know anything about her. To our mothers, who have lived over the past 30 years and probably struggled with it and said, I don't know, you know, I, I, I'm so different than I used to be on this subject and I'm still working it out. To 
some of the 20 and 20 and early 30 year olds I've encountered who will give me an answer like, Oh, Heavenly Mother, sure, I can believe in her if I want. You know, I have the confidence, I have the relationship with God to to seek her out, and I don't really care what everybody else says. You know, I think we're in a generational shift right now where we're getting to a generation where both men and women um, are very savvy at linking their church experience with their outside experience. I don't know. I have younger in-laws, and I just look at them, and I'm in awe of both the men and the women, of how they are just able to take some of these culture practices and just turn them on their head and be like, well, why would I do that? You know, I'm working with a woman at my office. Why would I treat women so differently at church than I do at my office? You know, and I think as the, as those, yeah, as that younger generation comes up, I, I, I don't, I hope I'm not naive in thinking that some of these problems will take care of themselves. But I definitely think that we are in a transition period. And I think we've been in a transition period for 30 years. And it's unfortunate that it's taking this long. It's causing a lot of unnecessary pain, the fact that it's taking this long. But um, I do think when I look at my husband and I look at some of our friends and I imagine them in church leadership roles, I know that they are going to be so much more sensitive and aware of these issues. My husband has given talks in church about how to interact with women, how to treat women. I mean, he does have three daughters, so he's very sensitive to this, but the most feedback that I got from my fair talk was from men and specifically fathers of daughters. I'd say probably 75% of the feedback I got from the fair talk was from fathers of daughters who said, I can't believe I've been so stupid. You know, I, I have have fallen into these traps in past years, I'm going to change because I see my daughters rising up in this world where they don't, you know, as I said before, there's a gulf between their lived experience and their church experience. And I can see that this is causing a problem and I want to do everything I can to bridge that gulf. Articulate to the audience, the listening audience, some other changes that you suggest in your paper. Well, I want to make clear that the the things that I changed that I suggested um, were again efforts to increase the visibility of women in church governance. They were not an effort to inc- to change any um, doctrinally prescribed understanding of gender roles. Um, one thing that's happened in the ensuing weeks and months since the paper is that other lists have come out that have have shifted the tone of what I originally meant. And I'm thrilled that, um, that the idea of practical suggestions has taken root. And, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to see people grasping onto that rhetorical tool. However, uh, it is important for me, uh, personally and in, in the work that I do to, to emphasize that I really don't believe that anything I suggested is contrary to our understanding of, of ministry, as I, as I explained it earlier. I think the, the suggestions that I made were simply ways to show visibly to our congregations, to our people, and to the world that the ministry of women um, is in many ways parallel and, and um, a sibling to the ministry of men. They might work in different spheres, 
Um, and some people would criticize that as being separate but equal. And un unfortunately, I just think that that term has so much political baggage for us in the United States, at least, that we can't really use that term effectively. So I try and stay away from it. But I do believe that um, we we probably won't ever get away from the the individual responsibilities of separate separate spheres. But I do think that there are lots of opportunities for um, visually and rhetorically emphasizing the compatibility of those spheres. And so, for instance, one thing that actually has happened in the last few weeks, and I've gotten personal reports of this, is that because someone read about it in my fair talk, a stake president had his whole stake relief society presidency sit on the stand during their stake conference. And they, they, I don't even know if the state presidency spoke, but they were there and they sat there. And I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't think that diminishes in any way the acknowledgement of the priesthood keys that the state president holds. Um, he's obviously presiding over the meeting, but simply for the women in the congregation to see their leaders sitting up there, I just think has a huge impact. And, um, Another thing that I've heard is that um, uh, one bishop in particular who I got a personal report of has been having all-female sacrament meeting programs where only women speak. And because, of course, you know, we can, <laughs> we can <laughs> all point to the number of times we've had all-male programs, right? And he even had a female speaker speak after the high council speaker. <gasps> I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's had... He, this bishop has had two women give the opening and closing prayers, both prayers given by women. One thing he did that I thought was unusual and kind of flipping this on its head was he actually looked at the activities committee in, on, in his ward and noticed that they were all women. And he thought that was a gender stereotyping in itself. And so he put some men on the, on the activities Yay. committee. <laughs> um, so, you know, the, the, and, and other suggestions that I made involved taking our daughters with us on our visiting teaching trips. I don't understand why we don't do the parallel of what the men do. And I actually, since the talk, I've actually heard that that has been actively discouraged by, um, Relief Society presidencies in the past. And I just don't know why. And so, I would open that to anybody who can actually, you know, some, usually I can concoct in my head some reason, even if I don't agree with it, some reason why they might want to be careful about something like that. But that one I'm just baffled by. I don't, I have no idea why we wouldn't want to bring our daughters with us. It seems, it seems very obvious. And I remember going visiting teaching with my mom occasionally when, when I was growing up, I think that was more just coincidental, you know, take the kid along sort of thing. But I don't, but I have heard of some wards recently, um, even here in Salt Lake that have been having the young women come into the opening exercises of Relief Society. That was one thing that I found when I was in the Relief Society presidency in college was that there was such a huge, just, um, just shift in experience from when you graduate from high school and graduate from young women's and all of a sudden you're in college away from home and you're going to Relief Society and, and that was, that's kind of shocking, I think, to our girls. And, um, I have heard of some words that have trying to, trying to link those two more. Um, and, um, and then of course, uh, from, from the, uh, the counseling point of view, you know, we have an inherent imbalance in PEC. The young men's president is a standing 
presence in that meeting and the young women's president isn't even a potential invitee. I don't know why that happens. Um, you know, I know Pre Elder Ballard has spoken extensively and eloquently about the importance of the ward council and putting more emphasis on the ward council, which, which I appreciate. We still have a long way to go with that. But, um, you know, I mean, I think taking the initiative to always include the Relief Society president, um, in PEC and then in ward council, you know, equally value and reach out to the women over the other, uh, organizations and acknowledge that between the primary and the Relief Society and the young women's, those three leaders often are actually ministering to more than half of the congregation, right? Because a lot of times there are more women in the congregation. And of course the primary, you know, both, both boys and girls, that's a huge number in a lot of places. So, so those, those three women alone have responsibility for more than half of the congregation. And so that's just like a mental shift that our leaders need to be able to, to make in their own minds. That said, um, I received, I did receive some feedback from some bishops who were frustrated because one bishop in particular said that um, in two wards where he's been bishop, he has had a standing invitation open to the Relief Society president to come to PEC, and she wouldn't come. And he said, you know, I, I, either she wanted to just manage things with her own group or she thought my meetings were boring. And, you know, he was saying all this very humbly. He was saying this is from a point of view of, I failed at this even though I tried. I don't know what went wrong sort of thing. And that actually caused me to, to think a lot. I, I do think a lot of times that we tend to be, women tend to be our own worst enemies in, in, in these sort of things, either not taking advantage of those doors that are open to us or else, um, shutting doors on other women in judgmental and, um, petty fashions, which I think is one of my absolute pet, pet peeves and happens all the time. Um, but you know, I've pondered this a lot. Like why would these Relief Society presidents not want to go? And I do think that there are a number of things that we struggle with in terms of the way that we interact with other gender, the other gender at church. Um, and I think it goes both ways. I think, first of all, there is an inherently, um, sexualized overtone in our church meetings where, you know, you get men and women locked in a room together who have been told all their lives that they must, you know, either marry the other sex or stay away from them altogether. Um, and, you know, I think that this starts in our, in our college culture cultures where, you know, at BYU and elsewhere, every person of the opposite sex is either a potential mate or somebody else's mate. And we don't have a lot of opportunities because we're segregated fr from the time we're 12 on to interact with people, with the, the other sex in a very platonic cooperative way. And I think that that catches up to us as we get older and we're working in these committees together where, especially with women who might not like, I'm the only, you know, I work with all men at work and I really like them. I have a fun time with them. And I think, you know, that's, but that's unusual. Right. And I think for m many of our women, especially women who are at home with children, there are very few opportunities to engage with men outside of their families, um, in, in much more, um, academic or business or, or, you know, community oriented um, environments. And so I understand that there's a tension that comes there. And I think what happens is we tend to change our behavior at church. And if I, this is what I really, really would want to get to the core of with some of these, you know, more superficial behavioral changes. What I want to get to the core of is this idea that you don't change your behavior at church from your behavior 
at work or in your family. I mean, I, you know, there are husbands who are just steamrolling their wives, but I think for, for many people, especially in younger generations, you know, many people are reading the, the proclamation on the family as a manifesto for co-parenting, you know, right. they are, and you can read it that way. And so, you know, I, 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 I would hate for a rising generation to treat their, you know, wives cooperatively at home and co-parent with them at home and maybe even have joint careers at home, or at least have the, the wife doing some sort of part-time work and yet then come to church and just revert into this patriarchal domination. Um, which is the worst of our, of our people. At this point, I, I just want to interject and kind of redeem my mother from my previous comment, but that was what she was so good at is I watched her. We were at church the same as we were at home and she spoke her mind when it was um, necessary and challenged things that when it was necessary. And so I think at heart, she truly um, gave me that example but I think you're right that that is rare. I think we go into church mode, even, you know, as I'm sitting here listening to you, I'm evaluating my own behavior at how often I, it's like, um, a coping switch. I turn on my coping light switch and I go into coping mode and then it's easier. It's harder to, I think, risk some of, um, the criticisms you might get and some of the, um, negative stereotypes you might suffer, but I think you're right in terms of, um, for, for us making a mental shift and, and deciding that you're going to be the same person. Absolutely. And it can be lonely. I've been lonely. You know, when I've been asked to, um, give a, well, back when we were having, you know, enrichment nights, I remember, um, giving enrichment nights on, um, my favorite books, you know, and people would come in and and give wonderful examples of books that they read, but I would come in and I would talk, you know, and and I, for hap- fortunately I've toned it down a bit over the years, but I would come in talking about something very esoteric like Dante, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like something a Yale English major would come in with, right? And and I was I was shooting myself in the foot. I understand that now, but. I, I would definitely be kind of avoided afterwards and people didn't mean to, I mean, girls can be, girls can be cruel. I went to school with them for 12 years. I know, you know, I know the best and the worst of all female, um, interaction and girls can be cruel. And I heard this actually just a couple of weeks ago from, from a, a, a 20 something girl who said a sim- had a similar situation. She said, you know, I was asked to present on, um, I think she's a lawyer or something. I was asked to present on what I do at work. And she said, nobody sat by me at Relief Society the next day. That's horrible. We should be ashamed of ourselves. Uh, honestly, like that has got to change. And part of that is completely outside of any church implication. Simply, that's simply just women being women, girls being girls. You know, it's stuff that, stuff that we, we've done throughout the ages. Um, you know, I mean, it was, it was funny. I was reading the new, um, minutes from the Relief Society, original Relief Society minute meetings. And Joseph Smith even comments on that. You know, he says something about like, don't, don't, don't be petty. 
And, you know, the first talk that President Monson gave to us when he became prophet that was specifically addressed to the women, he said, don't judge. It doesn't matter if a woman's working. It doesn't matter if she's home. Don't judge. This is not even a conversation that happens outside of, you know, the United States, by the way. Right. <laughs> this is such a privileged conversation. Um, don't, don't judge. And, and, and I would just hope, I mean, I, I, I desperately hope that, and it was sad for me to hear that this had happened to a 20 something because I look at, you know, just the generation below myself and I have such hope for them. And I just, I just, you know, I, I, I'm so optimistic about them. And so it was discouraging for me to hear that this girl had had that same experience, but I just hope that we can say, wow, that's awesome. She's fantastic. I want to learn more about her and I don't, I'm not going to be intimidated by her. You know, I want, I'm, I, I hope our women can own their choices. We can choose to be stay at home moms in our culture and have that be absolutely honored and revered and, and have that be the best choice we can make. That's fantastic. But let's also, it, you know, go sit by the woman who hasn't made that same choice. Let's be thrilled that she's a part of our people. Let's be thrilled that she's out there doing what God meant for her to do. I am doing what God meant for me to do. There is absolutely no doubt in my mind. I've had, I've had to have a nanny for the last two years, but you know what? The day that I was offered my job, she dropped into my lap. I mean, that's a long story, but that's, it's actually not a long story. It's a very simple story. She dropped into my lap. She has been a part of our family. She's been a godsend, literally. And I just, I, I, you know, it's, and so it's lonely. Um, but it's about getting over that hurdle of just saying to each other, this is who I am and I'm doing what God wants me to do. You know, that back to the Mormon women project, that's what I always try to bring out in those. That's what I hope we always bring out in those interviews is I am taking the resources that have been given to me. I have been given the, I've been taking the voice that's been given to me in my life, which is unrestrained in my personal endeavors and I am doing what God wants me to do with it. And, um, hopefully our stories show women that are very confident, um, about, about that, those conclusions in their lives. And you know what? I bet more times than not, they do feel lonely at church. I bet they do feel lonely at Relief Society. I know some of them do. And I know a lot of our readers do because they'll write in and they'll say, I've never felt like I had a place at church before. And I come to the site and I see other women like me. And I'm just so thrilled to know that I'm part of an organization that has these women in it. Um, so, I mean, let's, we've got to change. We've got to change that. It has to be consistent um, with who we are outside of church. I was um, speaking with um, Andrea Rocky Moss, who you know, and will be doing a podcast with us as well on the historical traditions of the women in, in our in our church. Um, but she was. We were talking about how um, women on <clears throat> women on both sides of this coin really kind of, um, for some reason, there's a divide. The the women that choose um, the, to stay home with their children that that's becoming more and more of a choice instead of a cultural um, uh, influence. I think we're getting to the age now where women are making a decision that that is what they want to do and they're doing it thoughtfully. And I, and I, I think women before this generation have also done that thoughtfully, but there was more of a push and women are making choices to go to work, but that we're struggling to really 
have those two groups of women come together and, and really be, um, accepting and loving of one another, that it's not just a matter of, oh, she just stay home, stays home with her kids in this day and age where she has the opportunities to work or, oh, she's choosing to leave her children and go out in the workforce, that those stereotypes and judgments tend to hurt us. And that as a group, we should really focus on coming together and making changes that benefit women. I just wanted to you know, throw that actually, in there. <laughs> I know there. I know that a lot of people sort of wince with the whole concept of the Mormon mommy blog, but it's actually one thing I really love about the Mormon the Mormon mommy blog movement is because I think that more than anything has helped us see as a people that, as I was saying earlier. There is no longer this, you know, bright red line between domestic and professional life. It just simply doesn't exist. And it's, it's not just about our husbands running around with their Blackberries and their iPhones all day long and taking conference calls while you're on vacation because you can. It's not, that's not what it's about anymore. It's also about the flip side of that is, is this tremendous opportunity that it gives us to, to, to blur those in our female spheres. And, and I actually think that what the Mormon mommy blogs has done is force us as a culture to acknowledge and to admit, wow, you know, our women have found a tool. They found an outlet. And, and, you know, I, I, I think so. I, I hope that there's nobody out there who's condemning these women for, you know, supplementing their income or else being the breadwinners of their families by sharing their lives like this. So, you know, you can quibble with what they're sharing. But the fact that they are a movement within our culture, I think, is incredibly positive. And I also just think it's important for us always to, re- to remember that these, these cultural wars are not happening only in Mormon culture, right? I mean, this is, this is a, a cultural battle that's been going on for, for decades uh, in, in larger American society, as, and which, of course, has recently been epitomized by that Atlantic article about how mothers can't have it all. And, um, so, you know, we, we are working through these issues, of course, with, um, doctrinal, um, principles guiding, guiding our, our thinking, but we're not alone. We're not alone in this. And so as a cultural movement, um, we have, we, we need to be, we need to be sensitive to the whole movement and not just to what it's doing to more and more. Um, let's address a little bit, um, when you talked about, um, the bishop that put the men on the activities chair, um, we need to maybe integrate a little bit more in our callings instead of keeping them so gender specific where they don't need to be gender specific. So what are some of those suggestions that uh, just some callings that maybe women can start to hold that aren't priesthood necessarily related? Well, the underlying principle of, of the recommendations is that each one of us go to the handbook and examine it carefully and go through the effort to parse out what the handbook says and read between the lines and notice what it doesn't say. Because, um, I, and I, I've, I've heard of, um, for instance, there's been a lot of talk. I, ha- I actually haven't heard of this actually happening, but there's been a lot of talk 
about the fact that Sunday school president isn't a priesthood calling. Um, and I haven't corroborated some of these on my own, but, um, you know, I've, I've heard in, uh, before we, we arrived in our Boston ward, I heard that there had been a sort of unofficial, uh, bishopric advisor who was a woman who, uh, uh, made the invitations to people to speak on during sacrament meeting so that she was very aware of what the themes were, who was speaking, what songs were going with it. She did basically the program planning for the ward. In um, the New York, in the Manhattan stake right now, there are two female CPAs who have been called as advisors to the stake financial clerk. Uh, and, and you know, that some so some of these are made up callings. Right. Some of these are just seeing an opportunity, either seeing a need and deciding that it could be filled by a woman or else probably in the, in the case of the New York stakes, seeing women with CPAs and be like, Hey, you know, we need you. We can right. use you. How can we get you in here? Um, so I, I, I think it, it, either one of those circumstances can prompt a sort of introspection and an, an analysis of the handbook to see where can we, where can we expand this cooperation? That said, I mean, you know, there, we do need to reiterate for ourselves where it is important for, um, Aaronic or Melchizedek priesthood leadership to be presiding, right? Um, I've heard that, and again, this is, this is a rumor. I, Andrea Radkimas might be able to corroborate this, but I've heard that it's not anywhere specified in the doctrine and covenants that Aaronic priesthood holders have to pass the sacrament. I don't know. Um, but, you know, a study of that might be intriguing. Uh, you know, my, as I said in the, in, in my paper, I actually think a lot of times we see men doing things that actually, if we took a step back, we could see are already much more cooperative. And the sacrament is a perfect example of that. Um, you know, as I say in my paper, I'm the one who most often passes the sacrament to my daughter. I'm the one who's sitting next to her. You know, it doesn't really matter who at the end of the aisle was handing us the tray in the first place. The idea is that the sacrament is a communal opportunity for me individually to join in a triangular relationship with my family, my ward family, and then the Lord and come together same way that we sing hymns together. We sing them as individual worship. We sing them as congregational worship. We sing them in an effort to um, commune with, with God. And I see that idea of passing of the sacrament as the same. I think, you know, I think because it is an ordinance, it is necessary for the priesthood to, to oversee it and to preside over it. And we, we do know that, um, from the scriptures. But if we just, if we just broaden our vision of, of what we're actually doing as a community, uh, during that ordinance, I think we'd be startled to, to recognize that, that, you know, it's our authority as a ward member and as a mother and as a sister and as a friend to offer the atonement, the symbols of the atonement to the person who's sitting next to us. I think we can do the same thing with the temple. You know, I mean, there's, there's people love to talk about how female temple workers don't have to receive the priesthood before they get to work in the temple and how significant that is because male priest, male, you know, male temple workers obviously do have to have received the priesthood um, before they work in the temple. I, I think there's tremendous significance to that. Um, you know, the, the fact that uh, women um, perform the ordinances in the temple is huge. I, you know, I, of course, then you can take that and say, well, why don't we talk about it more? And why is there um, this language in the temple, which is 
disturbing to some women. Um, why, why don't we acknowledge the parody more readily of the temple experience? Um, and, and I don't know, I don't have answers for that. I, again, I'm just, I'm making the effort to look for the opportunities and look for the glass half full. And, and I'm just going to interrupt you really quick from a personal perspective. Do you, um, do you feel that these topics are appropriate to speak about in church? Um, in Sunday schools or relief societies, or would you recommend that they not be spoken about there? Oh, I wish we could speak about them more. Yes. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, there is, there is a whole other discussion to be had around, um, devotional language, um, taboo rhetoric, what that does for our culture. Um, you know, when, when, when leaders speak, um, male and female leaders speak in purely devotional, purely, um, scripturally founded language. What does that do to our ability to talk about serious personal challenges? Um, I think, I think that's also something that we are working out as a culture right now. How can you talk about struggles? How can you talk about questions in language that is still respectful and sacred. Um, I think, you know, that's something that we're going to actually need to, to think more and more about as the world around us becomes more and more profane. And I mean that in the sense of not just, you know, swear words, but in the sense that nothing is sacred, right? There is, there are no boundaries in, in rhetoric in the world today. So I think, you know, that's not my area of expertise, but I know that there are some scholars working on that and analyzing that from an anthropological point of view. What does it mean to not be able to talk about things? Um, what does it mean to have something, to not be able to talk about something because it's sacred versus not being able to talk about something because it simply just hasn't been talked about before. And so you think it's taboo. Um, I think that's definitely something that is into this whole package of this cultural change. That said, um, one of the things that we are doing on the Mormon Women Project right now and sort of my response to the, the outpouring from the fair talk has been not to um, reiterate the list of, of ideas like I did in the talk, because I think, as you mentioned earlier, that's actually not in keeping with what I'm trying to do on the Mormon Women Project. So what I'm doing instead is um, I've launched a page called Our Cooperative Ministry, and um, I, I'm linking to the fair talk and to a couple of other places where these lists have been generated, not as endorsements in particular, but just as to say that these are out there. But what I'm doing for, from our point of view, and which I think is consistent with the MWP brand is that I'm actually publishing stories that have come to me over the past few weeks and months of positive examples of gender interaction with the church in the church. And so consistent with the idea of showing women's stories simply as a tool to open our vision to what is possible. I'm sharing these stories to open our vision to what is possible. And these stories have included things like, um, an elders quorum president using daughters in our king, in, in my kingdom as the text for his lessons this year. Phenomenal. So we have a blurb about that from him says, this is what I'm doing. I have a, um, a mission president who just returned from a mission and wrote to me about, um, how his wife was leading training with both the sister and the elder missionaries, um, and how she was a powerful force in their mission and what she did in, in his mission. Um, I have a wonderful example of not 
not governmental cooperation, but of, of a woman who struggles tremendously with some of these issues. And yet a man came and visited her ward on a fast and testimony meeting and, um, talked to the ward as a visitor, you know, apologized for taking time in their meeting and everything, but just said he had to share an experience he'd had at girls camp and how he really felt like he had been inspired to address the girls in a certain way. And for this woman in the audience, it was just heaven sent. It was, it was real inspired communication. And so she wrote up that, that story and talked about, um, how, you know, a, a sensitivity to these issues among our male leaders really, really was meaningful to her. So I, I mean, this is, I just want to put in a plug for that. And actually Andrea Radke Moss will be, uh, leading that with me. So I'm really excited to have her help on, on this. I think she's going to be a tremendous asset and it's going to take us a while to get it up because we both have jobs and families and lots of other things that we're doing. But, um, I would just encourage people who, who have seen positive examples of this gender cooperation to, to write to us and, and include them in this repository. Because I think the more stories we get out there, the more confident people will be to actually act on this and to talk about it. And, um, one thing, one thing actually that Andrea might bring up is that, um, and one thing that's brought me a lot of, of, of both humor and peace over the last couple of weeks was that, uh, I became aware that this is just not new in our history. Uh, specifically, um, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, when she was here a couple of weeks ago talking at the, um, women's conference that the church history department put on, she, gave an example of a woman, I believe her name was Abigail Abbott. And this is actually recorded in that new volume, Women in the Latter Days, the first of the seven volume series that uh, Richard Turley and Brittany Chapman are putting out. Um, Abigail Abbott wrote a letter to Brigham Young uh, when he was planning a parade to celebrate those men that had participated in the Mormon battalion. And she wrote a letter and essentially in her letter, I'm, I, I can't summarize it. And Laurel summarized it in her talk beautifully, but this woman essentially, you know, traveled across three states, set up home in three different cities, had, you know, number of children die, carried children on her back across a river, you know, said, you know, was one of the original founding members of the place, something like that. I'm butchering all the details, but absolutely extraordinary things that she had done. And she wrote a letter and she told all of this to Brigham Young. And at the end, she said, in this parade, you need to, you need to recognize and honor and have some of the women present who supported their husbands while they went out on the Mormon battalion. And you need to do this. And did she, and did he, I, I believe he did. I'm not quite sure <laughs> the ending of the story, but I just love the fact that this is not new in our heritage, that we have women who from our earliest members were advocating for this kind of visibility. They just said, you need to acknowledge us. And, um, and, and they were, you know, giving specific examples of the reasons why they should be entrusted with this visibility. Um, I was again, back to that conversation I was just having with, um, Carol Cornwell Madsen about Emmeline B. Wells. She was adamant that she work with the prophet, not with the presiding bishop or not with some general authority. She worked with the prophet because that was her counterpart as president of the Relief Society, the General Relief Society president. And there were all sorts of feelings about when she was moved to a different building and when she was given a smaller office and all this stuff. But she, um, she was a tremendous advocate for this idea of visible parity, 
understanding that she had a different sphere, understanding that she had a different role of role and, and area of responsibility. Um, and, and we've, we've admittedly lost a lot of that, but, um, I, I use those as examples of, of encouragement and support because, um, these things are part of our heritage. And, um, while some might see them as scary and threatening today, we are in a time where we just have to work our way back to that, um, the, the days of those, of those early women and use them as our, our mentors and as our exemplars and, um, persevere united with each other and not being each other's worst enemies, but, but instead being supportive of each other. Thank you so much. We're out of time. I'm going to ask you a couple just short questions. Do you consider yourself a Mormon feminist? <laughs> That's actually not a short question. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was hoping you could give me a short answer. Um, I have publicly said, no, I'm not a feminist, which actually, you know, in a lot of ways is bogus. But um, for me growing up in New York City in the 80s with a professional working mother, it meant something very specific. Um, and so I've just distanced myself from the term because I understand and have personal experience with the baggage that um, is associated with that term. But, you know, I went to an all girls school in New York in the eighties and I read my Virginia Wolf and, you know, <laughs> I, um, I, I, I have fought fiercely, you know, for every woman to have a room of her own. Um, but, you know, and in fact, my daughter is named after a Virginia Wolf character. So, you know, <laughs> I understand that that's a bogus statement, but what I, the, what I do is I advocate for, for women everywhere to have the opportunity to build their talents and their skills to their highest potential. And I'm much more comfortable saying it that way. Great. That's, that answers my question. The other is if you have to say, what are the three truths you live by? That Jesus Christ was our savior and that through his life and through his death, he performed an atoning act, which somehow enables us to return um, cleansed and pure and justified back to our Heavenly Father. Uh, that was one. Oh, um, the second was that Eve was awesome. I love Eve, and I and I firmly believe it is part of my testimony that uh, that the that there's something incredibly important and powerful about us being women. And I haven't figured out what exactly that is. I don't think we will here on earth, but I, it's part of my testimony that the interactions between men and women are divinely mandated and that they are eternal and that, um, there's tremendous goodness and salvation that comes out of them. Okay. And, got one more. Okay. I got one more. Um, kindness trumps all it does. I mean, there's, there's absolutely no reason to not be kind and generous and to, and to be optimistic and give the benefit of the doubt to people and situations. Thank you. It has been a pleasure. And I hope that we'll hear from you more in the future. Well, thank you for giving me this opportunity. I really appreciate it. Come the of every blessing to my heart to sing the grace. Thank you for joining us today on A Thoughtful Faith. 
To discuss this podcast, check us out at athoughtfulfaith.org. The music from this podcast was generously donated by Lisa Frazier. Hear more from her at lisafrazier.com. See you, see you for